My name is Tom Stern. I am the author of the novel Sutterfeld, You're Not a Hero, out now from Rare Bird Books. And I'm uh, really excited to be talking today with uh, Dr. James Getch. Uh, he's the uh, assistant professor of philosophy at Eckerd College and the author of Vico's Axioms, The Geometry of the Human World, published by Yale University Press. Um, and his teaching uh, and thinking sort of centers around um, really broadly all, all aspects of philosophy, but focuses in ancient philosophy, both Eastern and Western, as well as in 18th century philosophy and the study of Buddhist thought. And I um, was really interested in, in talking with him because uh, a lot of the ideas that um, that I, I see when I, I kind of look back over uh, Sutterfeld, a lot of the ideas that I see there, I, I, I kind of trace them back to things that I learned um, when studying with uh, Professor Getch. So excited to talk to him about all that. So uh, welcome, welcome to the conversation, Dr. Getch. Anything I missed uh, by way of introduction you want to add in about yourself? No, that all sounds great. I'm just uh, glad to be talking with you. Great. So um, I guess starting at kind of a, a broad view when I was starting to think about the book and the ways that it really links back to things that um, thoughts that I, you know, was, was thinking when, when studying with you, um, it's sort of the broadest view I think of Sutterfeld as a character who's, who's kind of unwittingly in his case, but just trying to figure out how best to live. And I thought there was a real connection with that to kind of your overall approach to philosophy or your, your sort of thinking or relationship to philosophy. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that, about, kind of what, what you find in philosophy and, and kind of how you, you approach the connection between how you live and what you think and all that? Sure. Uh, philosophy, is, most people have heard that it's called the love of wisdom, but they don't think much about what that means. Uh, for me, it means uh, a sort of passion to understand what is most real and how to live in the light of it. So the, the, key, the key is in how you live. Uh, I generally tell my students the best way to get at what you think is most real is to look at how you live, right? And that can be a kind of sobering thing because the views you have of reality uh, directly inform how you live. And so if you look at your life, uh, no matter what kind of uh, lies you tell yourself, you can get a real picture of what you think is uh, most real. Now, in philosophy, you use reason, right? Reason, uh, uh, in a, I'm going to say in a broad sense, by that I mean reasoning involves imagination and memory and uh, logic. And all of these together are the tools of those who love wisdom to try to find out what is real so they can think about how to live. and. Uh, we could call that kind of knowledge wisdom, and philosophy is the love of that wisdom. Now, the other key part is uh, it's a love of it, and what you love or have a passion for, uh, you don't fully possess. So you're always on an approach. Uh, you're always aware of your limits. You're always aware of things you can't know as much as things you can, and you seek to mediate all that uh, through imagination, memory, and reason. And I really the that that idea that that you're you're kind of 
walking around um, that idea of what's most real is definitely something that in, in different threads I see as, as really kind of present in, in the book, um, you know, specific in many different levels on one level, there's sort of, you know, kind of a literal narrative level of it where there's a, you know, a floor in, in the book uh, that's at the top of this building that is purported right. not to exist, but that this character is sort of happens into and, and is, it becomes sort of his regular place to, to, ex to go to work the 87th floor there. And in thinking about that floor, it was connecting to me that the idea, and again, it's something that I know I studied with you, but the idea of, of kind of pragmatism, the idea that um, whatever I might think is most real at a core level, what I really think is most real is aligned with how I behave or how I live. I, I, you know, I, I take the next step in front of me because I believe that the floor is going to be there. And it's not until the floor isn't there that I'm actually forced into sort of an inflection point to rethink what, what that floor is. Um, and I, I think that floor existing, not existing is interesting in as much as it, it sort of leads to those questions of, of what does one take to be most real? Um, well, that's sort of a yeah. key because, um, you mentioned pragmatism and that takes me to that. I was thinking a lot about your book and what I see is, uh, is Kant, Immanuel Kant and his critique hmm. of pure reason. <laughs> and the idea that pragmatism comes out of Kant's philosophy, but uh, the idea is that all our experience is mediated through the categories of the human understanding. We can only experience reality as mediated through our brains and our senses as human beings can know things. And yet we have this uh, ineradicable drive uh, to know more than that, you know, Khan, as you know, called that the noumenal world, that the, what is ultimately real, you can never really know, but we have a drive to know it. So what is most real involves knowing ourselves in terms of our limits, right? I mean, there's a, here's a little quote from your book that sort of crystallized that for me. Charleston uh, could not really imagine a world existing as this one did anyway. Uh, so uh, my, his striving to imagine something, Charleston argued with himself, was clearly not a legitimate criteria for discerning whether or not something is as it is. Right? And if you connect that with the idea, I mean, I don't know what you were thinking of when he's not a hero but a man of conviction, but it seemed to me a hero would be able to sort of burst through the doors and grasp the noumenal world and know reality as it is, but... As Immanuel Kant taught us, the most we can do is act as if something is real. Uh, the most we can do is be a sort of man of conviction. And and we had sort of emailed back and forth a little bit about the book, and and I remembered that um, that piece about the ability to imagine something is not a legitimate criteria for discerning whether or not something is as it is, and it. And in thinking about it, it started me thinking about the idea of what, what then is the relationship of the imagination to knowing then if it's um, because clearly just because I can conjure something to mind, it doesn't mean that it that it it exists. Um, but the imagination, nevertheless, is kind of a really critical point uh, or element of how we even set about to try to know something to begin with, how we 
wrestle with it, how we try to make it, how we try to posit what it could be versus what it is. And I'm curious your thoughts on on kind of what the imagination's relationship is to knowing. Right. And here it's important to make a, a distinction. Uh, when I speak of imagination, I don't mean it in the sense of uh, simple psychological imagery, like I imagine a unicorn or a, a building with gears, right? Yeah. But but in the sense of, uh, Vico talked about uh, the, the Italian word fantasia, and uh, the way I translate that, the maker's imagination, the creative imagination, but creative in a strong sense. Like we could say somebody imagined the Empire State Building, right? And it was built, and somebody imagined uh, the space shuttle, and it was built, and there are these things we imagine into reality as human beings that we make, right? We're makers, the maker's imagination. So the imagination is something very strong, and what we make are human things, and we can understand human things. So when, we, when, we, when you know yourself, you know yourself as a human being, so you're not limited necessarily to yourself, right? in some solipsistic sense, but you're understanding yourself in terms of what humans can imagine and what other humans uh, imagine, you too can imagine and remake for yourself and enter into a realm of human meaning and human purpose, but it's not that sort of uh, (laughs) knowledge of uh, noumenal reality that's beyond uh, human beings' ability. So you have what Vico called a metaphysics compatible with human frailty, a sort of uh, human world that we can make that's full of meaning, but it's not arbitrary because it's coextensive with uh, the human race, not with simply some individual locked up inside himself. And I I see that, and I, I don't always necessarily trust my my take on on the nuances of what um, the book is about because it's uh, it's difficult to to kind of look at it as though I wasn't the person that made it outside of that yeah, maker's. I, I, I really think that's true too. That many times the artist is the last person to fully understand what they've uh, what they've made. Other people remake it and then get a different, uh, perhaps see it better. Yeah, yeah, probably better. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, but I, I see Sutterfeld as, as, as grappling with something in that space of, you know, he's sort of unwittingly almost kind of forced into this path of trying to understand the company that he works for, the, the world that it exists in, the ways that it sort of operates behind the scenes. Um, he sort of stumbles into it and it's kind of forced forward into this by this curiosity to understand um you know what are what are these these giant cogs that i'm now charged with supervising and overseeing and who are these people that are driving this business that are in some cases not even known by by the public around and and he's sort of wrestling with that idea of are these things in front of me pure purely matter are they just exactly what they are or are they as i suspect connected to something else is there more to them and that idea of kind of curiosity to me plays in 
to something in that space that relates to the imagination and 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 knowing as well. Yeah, Vico, um, well, Kant talked about uh, what it's an ineradicable part of us to seek to know more than we can know, and that sort of defines us. I mean, I, I was uh, enchanted with how your book began with the, the black eyes and the awful burden yeah. having to explain himself, and then it ends with him getting another black eye, but then he, he gives up the need to explain himself, but he's going to keep on trying to uh, figure out the damn cogs, uh, no matter how long <laughs> it takes. And in that way, he becomes himself. I mean, here's another little quote from your book. In the absurd midst of this drive to understand, Charleston felt more like himself, and that made him feel delight and despair simultaneously in equal measure. I mean, that that just sort of sums up my life sometimes. <laughs> oh God! And and the other thing that I wanted to ask you about because it it seemed to me a, a sort of meditation on capitalist society, right? I mean, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm reading like Sutterford, who are these people, the ones who make everything material, the endless mm -hmm. array of things that clutter our world? You've got this real long list of all this crap that we see, like <laughs> if you go into Walmart, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, and you say Charleston hated it when he forgot there was a difference between reality and what Thundercom made. And then, of course, Jane at the water cooler, she says, I, I want to help others instead of facilitating <laughs> spending. <laughs> and you just, you know, it's just like this, uh, actually at that point, he begins to feel uneasiness and it made me think of Kierkegaard. Uh, he's got this, uh, book with this marvelous title, The, the Sickness Unto Death. <laughs> this sort of awful despair you feel at having these infinite desires trapped in this finite world of plastic bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, I definitely, I, I definitely see that there. It's, it's interesting to me. I feel like, um, there's definitely, you know, a, I, I guess one could call it a critique of sort of capitalism. Um, but I think in, in one regard, I also feel like in the instance of, of Sutterfeld, if it wasn't that, it would have been something else. It just happens to be that, which is this massive, intricate, complicated framework that's well, really unthinkable yeah, that's, once you get to a certain sort of... Yeah, that's where he finds himself to be, right? I mean, yeah. it, I mean, I totally agree. It's the human condition, right? If he'd have been in right. Borneo uh, with a spear, you know, he would have still <laughs> he'd have been wondering about, you know, <laughs> how the fetishes work or something, and why is the chief, you know, in charge? Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that he finds himself in a particularly just convoluted framework of things to unpack you know the idea of um you know i was talking to somebody else about this and i was just using the example of like roads and and just how many roads there are in the world and how they're all made and it reaches a point where it seems like whoever's making them it it, ha it transcends any one person and it becomes this network of people and a, and a network that who agreed to the network and and why is it all operating that way and what are the decisions that contributed to it and then all of the associated things that start to relate to it. And so I think that capitalism in this case, or or just, I guess, business, is, was kind of a nice framework for that because it 
it's it's equally unthinkably complicated and it's you know it's a human construct in that way but it's 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 infinite in in many ways as well in the ways that it sort of taps into our basic needs and our basic wants which you know aren't necessarily the yeah. same thing and it, it almost just kind of goes crazy at a certain point yeah. and if you think of Jacques Ellul uh, in the technological society he talks about that there's nobody in charge right like when the uh, it, it's the system right like when I say he, his example is the a uh, nuclear reactor uh, melts down and and uh, it's nobody's fault right <laughs> <laughs> he says they'll, they'll want to pin it on this poor bastard that was at the control board, but no, it's uh, it's this an infinitely complex system. Yeah. And I I think that for me, I think is at the heart of of what I see when I look at Sutterfeld is that idea of how do I as one person, and in the case of Sutterfeld, a very sincere and well-meaning, but, but in some ways maybe unexceptional person, how do I live in the light of all of that, all of these things that are, are built up, that are constructed, that are all around me, that, that I am as contingent upon as I am repelled by in some cases, um, and, and how do I make meaning in that context? Exactly. And, uh, I mean, there's, there's one part of the book, well, there's meditations on the innocence and how innocence uh, can be crushed, right? This mm -hmm. great fear. <laughs> I know I've talked about that with you before. I'm sure uh -huh. the same fear. <laughs> <laughs> there's all these things waiting, you know, that can crush the innocence. And uh -huh. uh, I know he'll wake up. I mean, there's one with he wakes up noting delicate things, you know, the idea of simple goodness, the smell of the soap and children and how mm -hmm. they walk. But then, then, then something will, uh, something can happen, and we're sort of haunted by those things. And uh, and he spends a day, right? He's a, he spends a day in a sort of enchanted place, like he's a Buddha cleaning all the windows and everything, and he's enlightened. <laughs> And the next day, it's all gone. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that's, uh, I wonder sometimes if, if that's what, uh, that's all there is. Yeah. yeah. We're, all, we're all not heroes, but the best we can be. I notice he, he recognized the security guards were men of conviction, too. Yeah. <laughs> they were, they were, uh, they were doing their best. Uh, yeah. Was. yeah. Yeah. Um, I also, also too, before I forget, though, I, I've, I've always wondered what the invisible hand looks like, and now I know it looks like Twithar. You've given us an image of the invisible hand of capitalism. The invisible hand has been revealed. <laughs> Uh, it's something you were just talking about also touched on a, a piece that's kind of at the heart of the book for me as well and the idea that the, the, the relationship between the value of asking the question versus finding the answer or the answer as something that is a definitive thing it's an X or a Y or a Z right, and right. I feel like uh, Sutterfeld's, part of Sutterfeld's journey also is is maybe coming to a place where 
uh, asking the questions themselves um, is maybe all all one can do, but a- asking them really really well and really hard and really thoroughly and maybe going on the ride that one has to go on to ask those questions. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and uh, that that puts me in mind of uh, really the first philosopher ever studied, Søren Kierkegaard, in his uh, concluding unscientific postscript, where he talks about subjectivity being truth, but that doesn't mean it's, uh, as we talked about, not something that's uh, sort of uh, arbitrary or relative, but something that relates to what it means to be human in a very real sense. And at one point in the book, uh, he quotes Lessing, uh, Kierkegaard does, and he says, Mm -hmm. suppose God held in one hand uh, all of truth, and in the other hand, the eternal pursuit of it. He said, I would choose the hand, Lessing said, of the pursuit of truth. Now, of course, that's just a sort of metaphor or image for what I take to be the essential, essential human condition uh, that uh, Kant makes so clear in his critique of pure reason that will forever be approaching the truth but never achieve it. And to have as much fidelity to that as you can is how you become a genuine uh, or authentic human being. Right? And that there's nothing more to it than that. That's and you have to be willing to live with that, with with not having answers. But that doesn't mean you don't have truth. Okay, uh, people always uh, it always astonishes me. People are like, if I can't have everything, fuck it. You know, <laughs> if I can't have all truth, then there's no truth. You know, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and and I always say, like with students, I love to say, so suppose you're in immense pain and a doctor tells you, I can relieve your pain for six hours out of the day, but that's all you get. And you're going to say, fuck it, if I can't have 24 hours pain-free, I don't want the six hours. You know? <laughs> all we get is the intimations and hints that we uh, try to be faithful to and the more faithful we are to those hints, the more we become ourselves, right? We become authentic and we can have a kind of life, right? But it does shift, I guess, what we would presuppose a category of, or categories of knowing would be, right? I mean, it's, it's a difference. There's a difference in, in, Adopting that type of thinking, there's a difference between the notion of knowledge as information and knowledge as um, as what? What what's that? What is the kind of epistemological equivalent that fits into that? There. Hmm. Are you talking about the difference between? I mean, uh, say. Well, you were well, talking about the fidelity to that noumenal reality or that fidelity to that truth that's kind of cast through that noumenal reality. And I was just thinking that, um, you know, we live in an age where, where knowledge and information really become synonymous, but that, um, in an attempt to, to kind of maintain that type of fidelity, that, that knowledge as information isn't necessarily relevant because, because knowing is a more, is more keeping oneself in a space where they stay open to the things in front of them and that they adhere as much as they can to these truths, but they, well, they continue to seek them as opposed to ever sort of attain them. 
Yeah, and our culture, as you you say, is obsessed with uh, information and and wanting to have. Uh, well, the in physics, for example, they they seek for the the theory of everything, the TOE, it's called the ultimate final theory that'll explain everything, and that's a sort of passion uh, in our culture uh, that we can trace back to the ancient Greeks, the idea that we can grasp reality and know it, and that it would be uh, like uh, a manual. You know, you can just look in a book and and read off what reality is, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's uh, impossible. And so you're in a place of suspense, right? You're, you, you have to, you have to be willing uh, to live with the realization that you can't have. uh, (laughs) There's no information about your life or any information you get about your life is worthless at uh, finally. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I don't mean you, you can't know you need to, clean your teeth or take antibiotics, <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, I mean, information is fine, but, uh, when, uh, when someone you love dies, right. Or, or, or when you see innocence crushed, uh, no information will ever help. And all you have is the kind of things you can, uh, imagine in that strong and real sense and uh, and learn to live with that, I guess. Yeah. You ask hard questions. Sorry. You, must have, you, <laughs> you, you, must you have taught been, me. What do you? I know. I'm thinking this is ironic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the I think you mentioned the character Mr. Twytharp, who I think is also interesting because he. It represents a different kind of uncertainty to me that that there is also while there is an uncertainty to this type of knowing that can be very heroic there's also an uncertainty to the kind of mirror image to that an uncertainty to the thing that's driving the machine of of these mechanisms built around us in this case of sort of it was capitalism or this kind of mega corporation um right. and and Mr. Twytharp is physically, he's sort of a physical manifestation of this as well, where he, he doesn't really have a, a, a human form exactly. And uh, it's very unclear, uh, not, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily become that clear what those physical re- reasons are for that physical morphing or changing or whatever the case may be. Right. Um, but in an interesting way, I think, you know, Sutterfeld, even in pursuing that truth as he's learning to become a little bit more um, uncertain in the way that he's trying to categorize or come to know, he's also greeted with a type of uncertainty, which also, I think, throws him into this kind of off-kilter state as well. Yeah, it, it's, it, I mean, uh, it can take you two ways, right? And uh, it's a choice, right? I mean, it seems to me you could make a perfect case for a kind of nihilistic response to the to this understanding, mm-hmm. and in that case, you'll you'll end up uh, a, a squishy man making secretaries <laughs> give you blowjobs, you know, and that's how you deal. That's the meaning you'll make, right? And uh, <laughs> or 
you can you can do something else with it, right? And there's no way to have information about you know there's no there's no scientific plan that's going to tell you which way to go. You simply have to choose, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that brings me back to Socrates, like everything else does. You know, uh, I mean, there's this great in the Fido, the, the dialogue on the, the day he's going to die, and he's talking with his students, and he says, look, I, I can't prove any of this to you, right? I can't prove it to you. But A, that doesn't mean you should hate argument. That's sort of the idea. If it won't do everything, I'm going to ditch it because it will do something. He says, but one thing I know for sure <laughs> that I'll be, I'll have a I'll have a better life in how I've lived if I act as if this is true, right? And as a bonus, I mean, this is the way I paraphrase it. He says, I'll, I'll be less boring, essentially. <laughs> I'll, I won't. I won't be such a damn bore, right? We'll we'll live a more. We'll live as if there's meaning, and that will be a beautiful thing, and it it might be there, right? You don't know, so you have to gamble, and you choose what you're going to gamble on, right? And uh, what's the more beautiful gamble? What's the more beautiful gamble? Which I and which I think takes me back to this idea of heroism, which is you know kind of laced, I think, throughout the book, and it's obviously a part of the title. But in right. this kind of negative capacity, you know, in, in as much as the title is declaring the protagonist not a hero, um, I think I, I very much think of Sutterfeld as a hero. But I, I think that there's there's something interesting to me in the tension between being heroic in a world where maybe the idea of heroism is quite removed from what a, a truer form of, of heroism might be, or which is not to say that that these other forms might not be true in their own right, but that in a way moving towards an uncertainty, moving towards trying to figure out how to live in a world where um, you know the the truth will not boil down to acts, that it right. almost requires somebody to um, to maybe always be perceived as though they weren't heroic um, because they're in a world that that values different things. Well, that's that's it. You know, the the man of conviction, right? I mean, if we talk about heroes. I mean, it was interesting to me if you think about nine uh, eleven for a second, how a lot of things came into focus in people's minds. As I thought of it, it was as if everybody <laughs> everybody began to talk and think like I try to do all the time for a brief period. <laughs> and and then it went away. And during that mm-hmm. brief period, everybody began to see, oh, we call all these other people, these sports people heroes, we call all these other... But the real heroes were the people who just did their jobs and marched up into the building, firemen and policemen and people helping Mm -hmm. other people, people of conviction, right, on a very simple level. Uh, and, uh, And then it went away again, right? People don't like to think about that. They don't like, uh, to think about what that really means, right? Uh, that it's, it's very, uh, 
it's very unassuming, uh, or it makes me think of the, you know, you the Zen stories, right? That mm-hmm. that I love so much, and the the guy waits outside the gate for three days in the snow, and he's thinking he's going to go in. Now I'm here to learn wisdom. Well, what do I need to do? You need to eat your breakfast and wash the dishes. <laughs> and, uh, that's it. And here you go. You you went through three days in the snow, and you thought you were going to get some big thing, and it turns out you're just supposed to eat your breakfast and really eat it and really wash your dishes and just pay attention to that, right? Yeah. And that's all there is to it. And that's uh, that's kind of uh, disappointing on one level if you want to be uh, a hero, in air quotes. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, we should probably wrap things up here. Um, any other thoughts or any other kind of topics we didn't touch on in our conversation that you, you wanted to throw out? Well, let me see. I've got all my notes here. <laughs> and here I am flipping through it, but they can edit that out, can't they? All right. I know another topic that I sort of catch glimpses of when I was kind of, again, looking at the book and thinking about just different uh, classes I'd taken with you or, or, you know, papers, papers I'd written, um, was the idea of, of kind of truth as an unconcealedness as a, as a laying bare of something, which I think I connect to, um, reading Heidegger with you. Um, just curious if you saw, saw, saw those pieces there. I mean, to me, in a strange way, I saw it as almost being related as like a flip side to that, that pragmatism, the idea that, um, that if you're kind of living in a, a space where you've discovered that the floor beneath your feet is different, but everybody else around you hasn't, that you kind of move into a space where, um, you know, there, there's a truth, a truth that's existing and a truth that's out there and that you're coming to know, but that everybody around you would simultaneously, you know, s- steadfastly deny and, and not because they're wrong, but because their experience has not led them to question the question and to uh, essentially a, a kind of receptivity. I mean, if we we think of the uh, Charleston sitting there with his cogs and uh, slowly uh, first he tries to, you know, get the information on the cogs. And finally, he just, as it were, lets the cogs just show themselves to him. Mm-hmm. And he begins to hear things and notice things that other people don't. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, in that sense, uh, it's a long sort of discipline to realize that you can't actually, because we talked about, and it's one of the paradoxes, you're seeking the truth, but uh, to seek the truth is finally to let to let it be, let it show itself to you. To reach a place mm-hmm. where you can let it show itself to you, because uh, the truth doesn't depend on us. We depend on the truth. There's always an element of mystery, and we have to open ourselves up to that, and uh, to to let it 
show itself as it wants to show itself. And that's the sense in which truth is not subjective uh, in uh, a solipsistic or individualistic sense, but relates uh, to the human condition, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, on that note, said it better than I could. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. uh, we should probably wrap things up. So thank you for, for chatting with me. Um, again, uh, Sutterfeld, You're Not a Hero is uh, available everywhere now through uh, Rare Bird Books. And uh, check out uh, Dr. Getch's book as well, Vico's Axioms, The Geometry of the Human World, um, which is available as well. So uh, thanks for thinking with me and talking with me. All right. Thanks for your lovely book.